so yeah, if you have a question, just kind of throw your hand up and I'll come to you with a mic. We're going to try to record all this too, so that's why it's important that we get a, a mic in front of you to ask the question. Um, yeah, so I guess fire away. Who's got one? There we go. Hello, my, my name is Israel. Um, Cicero? Israel, like the country. Israel, yeah. He who wrestles with God and man. Um, my, my, <laughs> my question was, um, I know you mentioned something about pictures and how that's helpful because the metaphor kind of like you see the symbolism and the deepness of it. For me, like the Tabernacle of Moses like has a lot of gospel like in it, like, like contained mm -hmm. and obviously displays Christ. Um, in one of my studies, and I off the top of my, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but I know that the four tribes that guard the ark and the layout. The cherubim? Well, uh, the four tribes that were supposed to be like in the formation when the, when the ark was set. And right, I got you. Okay. So those four, excuse me, those four tribes were supposed to also represent in some way the four full gospel as well, because those banners that each tribe had for their own were the same animals that you just described. In your, in your um, studies and knowledge, do you see that as, also as a parallel, uh, the four Gospels being represented in, a, in the Tabernacle of Moses? Okay, that's a great question. And I'll just say right away, no, I haven't thought about that connection. However, um, we know that the early Christians would meditate on the Tabernacle. Uh, if you read the book of Hebrews, you can tell the preacher is just having the time of his life, right? Describing all the little pieces and he's relating all of it to Jesus, right? And then he's like, you know, I could just keep going, but time would get away. And so then he has to get back to his point. But the tabernacle was a, was a means of reflection and the church fathers would develop really lengthy allegories uh, of, of pulling out all the symbolism that they could find. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it's there. I'm, and, and, and I'm sure it is. Anytime you get four, they're thinking the fourfold gospel. Um, and that's the problem for Christians because uh, there's a certain relativism to imagery. Uh, and the church divided pretty early over this. Uh, there were some interpreters in Egypt and Alexandria that would allegorize everything in the Old Testament if they could. And then there were other Christian scholars in Syria up in Antioch about a century later that said, you know what, this allegorizing is getting out of hand <laughs> because it's so subjective. You know, what you see is this being its ultimate meaning Anyone outside of your brain can't make the journey with you. And so they got worried that we really don't want to build doctrine on this. And so what happened was eventually in the West, you get like a Thomas Aquinas who said, you know what, all our doctrine is going to be built on the literal interpretation of the text. Um, and we're also going to uh, uh, pay attention to church tradition and the, and, the, and the rule of faith to make sure that we don't, we want to learn from earlier mistakes of heresy. And, and that's going to be our doctrine. However, when it comes to your own personal devotion and meditation, and if it elevates your heart and it leads you to prayer, then have fun, right? But what they, what they call that Lexio Divina or divine reading. 
which was inviting the Holy Spirit to, 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 to bring some of these deeper, deeper teachings. Now, for me, my personal rule is when I engage in Lexio Divina, that's between God and I. When I get up to preach in a church, I try to be very careful and only teach what everyone else in the room could see if they just looked at the text. Does that make sense? So hopefully that helped. Is that it? Great. All right. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm Ron. Uh, so the question I have is, uh, you talked about the symbols in Ezekiel's vision, and how do you tie in the book of Revelation to that? Because they're quite similar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the question was, how do you relate Ezekiel's vision to Revelation, because they're similar. And what's interesting, um, you said Ron? Is, I didn't mention Ezekiel. You, you did that in your brain. But it's not, I'm not surprised, because the vision in Revelation 5 is patterned in part off of Ezekiel's vision. And so in Ezekiel, you get the cherubim. Um, John doesn't use that language, but you have the same four faces. Right, and, and what's interesting about Ezekiel is he looks up and he sees the sea of glass. In Revelation, John looks down and sees the same sea of glass. And so there is this subtle transcendence, I think, between Ezekiel's vision and John, where these, there are these little signals that suggest that John may have been given even more insight into the mystery of God than Ezekiel was given. Um, Ezekiel's vision was called... Um, <clears throat> the chariot vision. And that vision is at the root of what today is called Kabbalah, just as a sidebar, what's interesting. Um, Kabbalists, which is the mystical side of Judaism, they will meditate on Ezekiel's vision and they will fast and they'll go through various ascetic disciplines with the hope of elevating their souls to go on a spiritual journey. And if you read Kabbalist literature, they go through various heavens and they kind of make their way towards the Godhead. Um, <clears throat> it, an interesting difference between Kabbalism and Christian meditation is we don't transcend to God, God comes to us in Jesus Christ. And so John doesn't, uh, on his own, ascetic discipline arise to heaven, but rather Jesus comes and gets him and gives him this, this, this vision. So there's a subtle difference there between Christian mysticism and, and at least Kabbalist uh, mysticism. In the book of Revelation, there's no invitation in that book for asceticism or mysticism as far as I can tell. Rather, the message there is, this is the reality, this is the truth, this is the kingdom of heaven which is coming to earth, be faithful meaning be faithful in your immediate life and in your context, be obedient, right? That's, that's kind of the message, so. Hi, I just had a quick question about, um, wondering if maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on What's your name? Oh, sorry, I'm Laura. Laura? Um, you had talked about how the four Gospels in the early church were used, or all considered to be authoritative. 
Can you, do we have any knowledge of like what kind of access um, the different regional churches had to the four gospels? Yeah, great question. Yeah. So we think uh, that Mark published the first gospel and it would, it would have been published in the mid 60s uh, before the temple was destroyed and he published it in Rome. Uh, and that, uh, that gospel was then taken by him um, as he traveled throughout the Mediterranean. And we've got good tradition that also puts Mark as the first uh, bishop of the church in Egypt in Alexandria. Um, and so he, he would have taken his gospel with him and it would have been copied and copied and copied uh, from all the, the regional churches. Um, Matthew, we think, was a revision of Mark, which is interesting. 80% um, of Mark, word for word, is in Matthew. However, what you get in Matthew is all of Jesus's discipleship teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount. And so what we think is that the church in Antioch, which is in Syria, which, by the way, is just hell on earth right now. Um, I've got Syrian Orthodox friends um, and it's just, they've been brutalized, but uh, that's an ancient center of Christianity right there. And right in Damascus, where Paul was going when he had his life-transforming uh, vision. But uh, anyway, we think Matthew would have been written within a decade after Mark's publication, but Matthew wanted to include uh, what they would call catechesis or discipleship material. And that's why you get all these long discourses in Matthew. Um, Matthew quickly became the most popular gospel, the most quoted in the church fathers, and I find quotes for it throughout the Mediterranean world, basically coextensive with where the church was at in the second century. Because 80% of Mark was in Matthew, it, it kind of fell out of use to a certain degree, meaning it wasn't quoted as much. However, the church never disregarded it because it was authoritative and was from the beloved apostle Peter. Now, John, we think, was published in Ephesus, in Asia Minor. Um, Asia Minor is basically where Turkey is today. Um, and that was the most evangelized region of Christianity in the late first century. And uh, he wrote uh, to churches, congregations throughout Ephesus. But because, of course, he was an apostle, um, an eyewitness of Jesus, um, his gospel was, was, was brought in. Now, Luke's uh, publication is a bit more mysterious. I have no idea where he wrote it, and none of the church fathers do either. Some think he wrote it in Greece, but we just don't have a lot of tradition on that. Um, but, uh, but he was an associate of Paul, but what, what you see is by the second century, you have references to all four Gospels in a collection. And, and this is important, I think. Right at the turn of the first century, there was a new technology that was beginning in Rome. Um, and it was called the Codex. Uh, before the Codex, writings were written on 30-foot long scrolls. So you could put Isaiah on one scroll, or you could put Matthew on one scroll. But these were horrible to travel with because they get crushed, and they were really awkward because you'd have to unroll them, 
you know, to find your place and, and to read. They didn't travel very well. But the Romans developed a codex, which is really just our modern book, where you, they sewed the sheets of page, they, showed, they sewed pages together, and they made these really large, these, these, these books, which you could walk around with, and you could actually copy multiple books into one volume. Does that make sense? The Christians adopted that technology, and missionaries copied all four gospels in one codex, and what they would do is they would walk into the villages and they'd walk into the cities, and this was what they would preach out of. And so it was these four gospels that would be foundational to the establishment of the church. And, I, and if you want, I can send you my notes, but I've documented just beginning in the second century, you, you, you get reference after reference to the fourfold gospel uh, with the church fathers saying, these are the reliable witnesses of Jesus. And it was fully disseminated as far as I can tell. Yeah, one other point. These other gospels, like the gospel of Thomas that you've heard about or the gospel of Judas, there are no ancient manuscripts that have those other gospels copied with the gospels in the Bible. Meaning there's not one codex that we've found that had the gospel of Thomas between Matthew and Mark. You know what I mean? Uh, they were always excluded, as far as I can tell. They weren't read in the worship of the church, and they were later. Okay? Hi, my name's Travis. So this is going to sound like a silly question at first, but for like a lazy or maybe an efficient Bible reader, you just made a compelling argument for not reading Mark, at least to me. If 80% oh, I'm glad of it. you asked that. So yeah. if I just say, all right, well, I feel like reading Mark, so I'll just read Matthew, 80-20 rule. What do I miss in Mark? Like, does he have a unique tone or f factual or chronological elements that I miss? Is, now I just want to only ever read Matthew again. <laughs> That's <laughs> then, the problem, right? <laughs> and I'm glad, Travis, I'm glad you brought that up because I don't want you to leave this morning saying, well, let's throw Mark out. Um, but Mark is under-read. I mean, it, he, people will read John and they'll read Matthew um, and, and people like Luke, but Mark tends to be the least read. Uh, but what's interesting is he was the first, and his, his writing is right from the mouth of Peter, who walked with Jesus. I mean, um, do you ever wonder why Mark talks about Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. I mean, Jesus raises people from the dead. Um, he casts out demons, and then he heals this lady who had a 100-degree temperature. I mean, what's the big deal? And she gets up and serves him a meal, you know? <laughs> or the detail about people digging through Peter's roof to let down a paralyzed man before Jesus. Um, those are all anecdotes from Peter. You see that? I mean, it's, it's because Peter's mother-in-law was important to him, and he was sharing out of his own memories. So I like to read Mark because Mark tends to be the simplest uh, presentation of, of the gospel in some ways. Um, he says this is the gospel in the very first verse, and then he spends about half of his time talking about the cross, and Jesus making his way towards the cross, you can also read it fairly quickly. Um, not that you should necessarily, but it's the shortest of all the Gospels. It's very action-oriented. Um, 
There's a few pieces in it that, that do not occur in the other gospels, and so you obviously want to read them because they're the words of Jesus and they're stories about Jesus. This is one of my favorite st- scenes, um, and it's not in the other gospels. So Jesus uh, rebukes his disciples for being blind. They don't, they don't see um, the kingdom of God, which has been manifested in front of them, okay? In the very next scene, a blind man is brought to Jesus in Mark. And Jesus sticks his hands in the dirt, right? Does the whole thing in the eye. I mean, he, he, he heals this guy, but there's a problem. The guy gets only half healed. Remember that story, right? He's like, I see trees, but I think they're people. So he, he doesn't quite get 20-20. And some have speculated that maybe Matthew and Luke didn't want to include the story because, you know, Jesus seemed to only kind of half heal the guy and, and may have shown his weakness or whatever. That's speculation. What I love about Mark is I think he was making a subtle point because Jesus never did anything by accident. Not only would Jesus tell parables, he would enact parables or teachings. And I think this two-stage process of vision of being only half blind was the spiritual state that the disciples were in. And I think Jesus was showing them that this is where they were at. They weren't fully free from the blindness that their life in, their, in the world had given them so they weren't fully understanding the message of the gospel. But then, of course, Jesus goes on to fully heal the man's blindness. He's able to see. But notice that after he heals the guy completely, he says, don't go back into the village. Don't go back, right? The idea being that you could fall back into even a worse you know, blindness. So does that make sense? So, so Mark has all kinds of these little nuggets, I think, that um, you can go back and meditate on, and they're very edifying for your faith. Yeah. <clears throat> How you doing? I'm Jason. Hi. Um, can you explain the connection between Josephus and the Gospels? The connection? Yeah. I don't think Josephus... Okay, this is... this this. This may not be what you asked for. Um, There's some evidence that Luke and Josephus knew each other. Because Luke was in the city of Rome uh, in the late first century. And Josephus, who I mentioned in in the talk, he was a Jew. He was not a Christian. Um, he witnessed the destruction of the temple and was taken by the Roman soldiers back to the city of Rome. But because he, he was a turncoat and he basically promised that the, that the, the general at the time would become Caesar, um, Caesar remembered that and awarded him with, with, with a home and uh, funds. And so Josephus had all this time on his hands in Rome, and so he started to write down his own memories of the the Jewish war. And what he would do is he would perform those in a public setting somewhere in the city of Rome. And there are all these interesting connections between Josephus and Luke that you don't find in the other Gospels. 
specific uh, uh, individuals who were um, like Thutis, uh, who was a um, sort of a false messiah who rose up against Rome. Um, in the book of Acts, he's mentioned, Gamaliel mentions him. Uh, there's also a guy named the Egyptian uh, that is mentioned. There's also these dates in, in, in Luke's gospel related to Caesar. Um, and so we think that it's possible that maybe uh, Luke used Josephus as a source. It's, it's possible, you know, to use this history. The most interesting connection is in the, the, the scene in Luke of um, Jesus who was disguised after his resurrection on the way to Emmaus. And when the one place that Josephus talks about Jesus, and this would take a long conversation, you can email me and I'll give you my notes. The, the place where Jesus talks, the place where Josephus talks about Jesus the most, there's two places. Um, in one place he mentions him as being the brother of James. But in the one place that he talks about Jesus in, in some detail, unfortunately, a later Christian scribe added words to it so that we don't know that it's Josephus's original wording. However, the parts that we do think go back to Josephus, there are four words that he uses that occur in the Emmaus episode in Luke. And so some scholars think that maybe they shared a source, or there, there's, some, there's some connection there. Um, to me, it's great, because what that shows is Luke, if he did know Josephus, it means that he was willing to take the best of history to supplement his account. Um, and Luke tells us that he wasn't an eyewitness of those events. And so if he had access to a historian that was alive in that period, why not, why not use him? Was that getting at your question, or...? Okay, yeah. So from my, pers my, my personal opinion is, is that they had, a, they had some kind of relationship and there was some sharing of information between them. Um, but Josephus never converted, as far as we can tell. Yeah. Hi there, my name is PV. PV? Um, All right. I kind of want to go back to the previous comment about Jesus doing the parable, not only explaining them, but actually acting them out and showing the actual miracles of God through the healing process, as well as signifying the, the significance of the healing and what they actually meant in terms of repentance. What I wanted to ask was, where in the history of the church did it come to a point where it was interpreted literally to the point of having no quote-unquote, sign such as blindness or deafness being a sign of sin or an indication of sin that need to be cast out yeah. or healed. And if that wasn't the case, then it was a sign of, of demons or uh, a refusing to cooperate with God, if you will, that kind of perceptuates or continues right. on with the church today, especially yeah. with Catholicism and the Protestants and the Pentecost and so on and so forth. Okay, great question. Uh, I think to summarize it, and please correct me if I, if I incorrectly summarize, but if I heard you correctly, it, at some point the church kind of flattened the meaning of the miracles, 
and we, we tended to focus simply on the correlation between being deaf or having another um, uh, um, physical ailment as being correlated with sin and disobedience with God. Is that correct? That was the ancient worldview. Um, if, if, if you had an ailment, meaning if your body was anything less than its telos, meaning if there was a part of your body that didn't fully function, um, there, were no room, there was no room for accidents. And this was pervasive. Um, in Judaism, but also th among pagans and uh, throughout the world, is if, if, if there is something wrong with your body, then either you or your parents or your ancestors did something wrong. Um, and what's interesting is there were two people that opposed that idea. One was an atheist named Epicurus. <laughs> And he wasn't quite an atheist. I guess he'd be more of an agnostic. I mean, gods kind of have parties up in, uh, up in heaven, and they don't really care about us. Um, but Epicurus was the first that I'm aware of that advocated uh, free will. And you, you also get a few physicians um, uh, who began to explore physical illness through physical means, meaning they began to say, let's not jump to the demon, <laughs> but rather let's look at the physiology of the issue. Um, and, and those physicians are the parents of modern Western medicine, okay, which tends to not uh, perform exorcisms when you go to Phoenix Children's Hospital. Okay, so <clears throat> two things to say about that. So the Epicurus was one person that started that train of thought. The other person that opposed that idea was Jesus. But for a totally different reason. Uh, Jesus, when his disciples looked at a blind man and said, was it his sin or his, his parents' sin that put him in this situation? Jesus quickly responded, neither. And so he introduced a new variable there. Uh, my, I have a daughter who has mitochondrial disease, and uh, it's an incurable condition, and uh, she's doing fairly well. She's 11 years old. But um, through, through the years, I've had Christians come up to me and my wife and would say, if you only had more faith, uh, your daughter would be healed. And, we, you know, we've gone to elders, and they've prayed over her, and, and, and of course we've prayed, and um, I do know that we have the faith of a mustard seed at least. <laughs> and I don't know why my daughter has mitochondrial disease. The the physicians, we just did an expensive test through Phoenix Children's Hospital, um, and we, we thought we'd get sort of the final explanation, but it was just more ambiguity. We don't know really why. Um, but um, 
But Jesus, when he saw the man who was blind, said, well, actually, this is a, this is a, a moment in which God can display his glory. Right? This is, this is a moment in which God can step in um, and he can finish his creation. And what's interesting is, is Jesus in John says that he had, he's come to complete the Father's work. Um, and he alludes back to the creation story where God rested on the seventh day. But then when sin entered the world, right, things began to break apart. Uh, so we're clearly not living in Eden. And Jesus, I think, understood his ministry as coming in and completing that work, right? Or reconciling that work. And so we're not surprised when Jesus heals people from different physical ailments. But again, he also heals people with multiple ailments, right? Physical, spiritual, social, it's a much broader thing. And I think we do a disservice to Jesus when we look at his healing stories and we just reduce it down to just one variable. Um, I think there's a mystery there, right, that Jesus himself, um, um, I think, protects. And just the last piece I'll put on that is Paul using the transfiguration that we looked at this morning, said that personal suffering, a personal suffering, and of course he had a thorn in the flesh, right? But he said that personal suffering can be a means of grace in our life. And so for him, the transfiguration was, yes, in many ways our life is gonna look like that chrysalis. We're, we're gonna die, <laughs> we suffer, uh, for many of us, we're going to have chronic illnesses and things um, and these burdens in our life, um, but that, that has its own purpose, right, in the formation of who we are in Christ. In fact, Jesus, to be who he was, became a servant. <laughs> and and <laughs> you've read Philippians too. So that, that seems to be the Christian life, um, is that we... Um, learn to um, understand our mortality, but then we allow God to renew us. And that renewing begins in this life, but there will be certain parts of our existence that will not be renewed until the resurrection. But we know that it will happen, amen? Does that help? Is that... Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing your personal story as well. Um, just in case you heard me chuckling with your story, that's because we've experienced a lot of the same thing firsthand about the laying of the hands or the praying or the comment about not having enough faith and so on and so forth. And for me, what really deprives me is how so many people tend to overlook Scripture from the Old Testament, such as, for example, Psalms 113.9, where he talked about knitting you in your mother's womb, and, you know, those kind of terms or statements about how intimately God knew you before you were even created. And it's, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it's that sense of people or churches losing sight of 
what we're really here for. Why or what do we really have that we, we are here on this earth for? And, you know, we may not know the reason for why we have these elements or why this particular person has something or another person has something else. But the fact is that God created us knowingly that we would have those things. And I really like the way that you, you talked about the transfiguration and about how Paul's example of the thorn being in the flesh can also be the grace. But churches in general seem to really overlook that. And, you know, again, it comes back to the message of Christ, well, the full message of Christ, and where do we as humans or people in general miss that fullness of the message? Is that just a way for us to try and make a little bit better sense of the world for things that we don't understand that God can see overall or something along those lines or is it just something much more simple and trivial such as, you know, we're just a bunch of sheep out in the pasture or something. Yeah, yeah. No, I I wouldn't presume to try to answer really what your question is, uh, which is, you know, why do we struggle to understand the nature of the gospel? I do know that our culture isn't real big on suffering. Um, we, you know, have people die away from us, um, and we, we tend to try to hide poverty, we tend to try to hide things, um, because there's this myth <laughs> uh, that I think Americans have, um, you know, succumbed to, we, maybe, I know I have to a certain degree, um, because we do live in the most prosperous nation in human history. I mean, we don't realize that, but I mean, it's insane, the ease of life. And I don't mean to diminish the pain in your life, but it is utterly insane, the resources that are available to you and I. We're not the elites. I mean, we whine about the 1%, but the 1% in the ancient world and most places in the world today, it's... We're, I know, I know my, my family rose out of poverty um, and we're in the middle class and uh, uh, I think that's had a huge shaping influence on the way that we approach our faith. Uh, and so, again, suffering, tragedy, God can use those things as a means of enlightenment. I know that when my daughter was diagnosed with her illness, my whole life just sh shifted, it just changed. It, I don't see the world like I used to. And while I don't, I'm not grateful for, I mean, obviously I, I would not wish the illness on my daughter, but I know that the Lord used that to change our family and our values. So I know that my wife lives very differently today than she would have, you know, from that encounter. And, the good news is, is that as Christians, we have a gospel that can address those things. There's false gospels out there, like the prosperity gospel, that has only one shallow paradigm, which is you believe in God and your life's gonna get great. And for most of us, that's not realistic. You know, there was one lady who came to my wife and said, you know, 
because she invited my wife to go and bring my daughter to a prayer service. And, <clears throat> and the women in the prayer service put their hands on my daughter, prayed for her healing, and the lady came back a week later and said, well, is she healed? <laughs> and my, my wife said, no, but we're really grateful for your prayer and, and um, felt the grace of that. But, but then she told my wife, she said, well, it's because you didn't have faith. Something, something didn't go right. About a month later, her husband had an aneurysm and just died suddenly. Just out of nowhere. And it shattered her. I mean, it would shatter anybody, but it, I would suggest it shattered her at a deeper level because her faith was so shallow. And she hasn't recovered from it. Um, she's in the, our community and you know, we continue to have a relationship with her, but she had such a, a one-sided view of the gospel that when the Lord took her husband, she couldn't make any sense of it at all. But if you read the New Testament, right, her experience is not atypical. Hi, my name's Frank, and I have a couple questions. First one would be, so I, I kind of like was taught that the Gospels each had a different audience. So there's like Mark was more Roman oriented, if that makes sense. And like Matthew was <coughs> Jewish oriented and Luke was Gentile oriented and John was for the Christian. I don't know how like true that is. And maybe yeah. you can totally shatter that right now by something you say. Or... Well, I don't want to shatter it. Would that, <laughs> would, that, would that harm you, my brother? I don't want to. <laughs> it's overly simplistic. Because uh, I, I'm convinced that all four Gospels were written with a twofold purpose, to build up people who are believers and to evangelize the lost. Uh, that's the way that the early church used the Gospels. Um, Justin Martyr would cite the Gospels to build up Christians and discipleship, but he also cited the Gospels to rebuke Caesar for killing Christians unjustly. Um, so the, I think the Gospels served a dual purpose. And as far as I can tell, the moment they were published, they were being read in the worship services of the church. So in a way, they all have the same audience. Does that make sense? They're written primarily for Christians who are assembling to worship the resurrected Jesus. Now, if you want a more substantial argument defending that idea, um, there's a, probably the most prominent New Testament scholar today is Richard Bauckham. And uh, I could give you his book if you email me, but he, he wrote a book called The Gospels for All Christians or something like that. And he basically kind of critiqued that, that earlier idea that they're written for all Christians everywhere. And that makes sense because they were collected into this codex, right, at a very early period, and they were for everybody. Um, so to say that Matthew is written specifically for Jews, um, no. There's actually lots of sections in Matthew where he's very careful to be inclusive of Gentile Christians as well. And of course, he's the one that has the great commission of reaching out. So I, I just think you, you, you want to be careful. But having said that, though, 
every, each gospel probably had an original audience, right? So there's probably something to maybe reflecting on what did it mean for Mark to publish a gospel when Nero was burning Christians alive for his dinner parties, right? I mean, that's an important question. Maybe that's why Mark emphasizes so much picking up your own cross and following Jesus, because he's trying to build up the faith of Christians who literally are losing their lives, like Peter, the guy that gave him the memories. So I, I think it's a good reflection to do the historical work, and I do think it's interesting to kind of go back to Syria and look at Antioch, where Matthew was published. And the interesting thing about Syria, though, is that was the first, Antioch was the first city that had Jews and Gentiles in the same church. So if you go back, you had a, a, a mixed group at the very beginning that Matthew was probably a part of when he was writing. And I think understanding that kind of helps you better understand the Gospels. Um, but but I, I don't want to push that too far because the Gospels, I don't think, were ever meant to just address one little audience. I, I think they were always intended to address all who were followers of Christ. And ultimately, I think they were intended to address the entire world. Thank you. Also, um, I also heard somewhere, um, not exactly sure where this was quoted, but that James, when they were uh, deciding the 66 books, that um, there was a lot of opposition to wanting to include James. Right. Uh, is that something that... Lutheran prejudice. <laughs> no, I mean, every book underwent some discussion, but... Uh, James was uh, the brother of the Lord, and he was admired around the world. Um, and so, uh, again, I'd be happy to give you my notes. I have a section on James being brought into the canon. Um, but, um, no, um, it's, there was, I think there could have been some question about how does J James's idea that faith without works is dead correlate with Paul who said, we're not saved by works, but faith? Um, and of course, Luther wrestled with that idea. And Luther was the one that said, James doesn't preach the gospel. And he put it at the back of his Bible, along with Hebrews um, and uh, Jude, I think. Uh, but um, I think there may have been some discussion in the early church when the canon was being put together. And I think that's why the, the, the verse in Galatians is so important that I showed you, where Paul himself refers to James, Peter, and John as pillars of the faith. And so I don't think it's ironic or accidental that James immediately follows Paul's letters. Are you following me? And where am I going with this? I think it's because the early church said, you better find a balance with these two, okay? And if you go back and read Paul, you misinterpret Paul if he was someone that said, hey, just believe and that's, that's it. <laughs> you know, you're not understanding Paul if that's your understanding of the gospel. You know, Paul says that faith is worked out in love. Um, and so even though we're saved by faith, not works in Ephesians 2.8, he goes on to say that we were saved for works, 
Ephesians 2.10. So I think, and again, uh, Pastor Tim, I hope I'm not getting on, um, yeah, I think we're up, we'd be on the same page here. Yeah, is, is, is the early church bequeathed to us this canon as a guide, right? And, and, and saying, you want to hold James and Paul together as brothers in Christ and try to find the wisdom of what they're both saying, right? And to be frank with you, I think Luther unraveled that tension. And that's a weakness in his whole, his whole tradition. Uh, but fortunately, Protestantism is much broader than Luther. And within a generation even, even Lutherans began to try to kind of qualify some of the ways that he presented his, his gospel. Israel. Hello again, sir. Um, well, quickly, um, can, can you say that each four Gospels also represent like a, not like a hidden role or agenda, but like, like John, we can obviously say that um, out of the four Gospels, John really hits on the, whole, on the home front that Jesus is the Son of God, the divinity of God. I mean, the first few uh, statements says, you know, the Word was with God, you know, you know the Word is God. So with Mark, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, can you say that one would say um, represented the Son of Man, the other one would represent the King, um, and then the other one, the Suffering Servant, would that be kind of accurate if you were Absolutely, to you're, you're basically summarizing the... Thank you. Yeah, the typology that I had up there. The ox associated with Luke, of course, focuses on the sacrifice of Christ. The King in Mark is the King, or the lion in Mark is King. Uh, emphasizing Jesus's regal authority. Matthew emphasizes his humanity, being a son of David. Does that help? Yeah. And then John, of course, is the eagle because of the transcendence of his theology. Yeah. Yeah, the church fathers said that John's prologue, Israel, that you mentioned, refutes all heresies. He said, if you take any heresy that has plagued the church, and read John 1, 1 through 18, you'll leave that heresy behind. <laughs> I think there's wisdom there. Uh, my name is Becky, and um, I had a question about, you have something on the front of your outline about the Apocrypha, and um, it's not included in our canon, obviously, and uh, I was wondering why not, and it's part of the Catholic Bible, I believe, yes, so why did they include it and we did not? Sure, okay, all right, some softballs here. Um, <laughs> no, that's why I'm here, it's a good question. So why, why do we not have the Apocrypha? Well, one is historical. Um, we had left by the time that the Council of Trent determined the Apocrypha as being scripture. Uh, the, the Reformation had started a generation before, and what's kind of funny is the Catholic Church invited Protestant leaders to go to the Council of Trent, but no one showed up, maybe fearing their life. I mean, that was a really low moment in the history of Western Christianity. Uh, so we weren't a part of that decision. Does that make sense? So when the Catholic Church said, all right, we're gonna officially recognize the Apocrypha, and for those of you who don't know what the Apocrypha are, um, they are writings mainly written in Greek, not Hebrew, okay, uh, that were written between the final prophet uh, Malachi 
and the gospel, Jesus. Does that make sense? So in those 400 years between Malachi um, and the New Testament period, there were several writings that Jews produced. And by the way, I love the Apocrypha. I don't have any problem with them as really interesting books that help us understand our faith. Um, you should read the Apocrypha, um, if anything, to better understand your Catholic friends. Um, they're fascinating works. You've got works of wisdom like Sirach. Um, you've got Judith, which is this amazing heroine. Um, not heroine, the drug, her sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hero. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're wonderful writings, but, um, but the, the second reason we don't have them in our Bible is because, the, as far as I can tell, the rabbis never recognized them as being scripture. And Paul says that the oracles of God were given to the Jewish people, meaning the oracles leading us to understand Jesus, that was something bequeathed to them. And so Martin Luther, as well as Calvin, deferred to the Jewish canon. Does that make sense? Um, they never read them as far as I can tell. Now, I gotta be careful here. A couple of the works are martyrdom, martyrdom stories. And when the anniversary of some of the martyrs happened, they would be read. But I, I'm, I'm certain that there was still a distinction there between them and the word of God. Okay, so, yeah. So that's probably the simplest answer is we weren't a part of the decision at Council of Trent. Um, the, the rabbis did not recognize them as scripture. They were not read in the synagogue. And then maybe a third piece would be Jesus cites from all three of those Old Testament sections that I reviewed with you, but he never cites the Apocrypha. Okay, so I personally don't think that Jesus viewed it as part of his Bible. Um, is that enough? All right. All right, well, I have one question for you. Um, um, you talk, one of the things I think we, a lot of Christians struggle with, myself included, is when we read the Old Testament, kind of finding uh, application besides reading about how bad it was before Jesus. <laughs> um, and so um, through some of your, the classes I've taken with you in the past and stuff, I've uh, been able to, to read the Old Testament with, with that idea of it pointing to Jesus, um, like you talked about with the transfiguration image. Um, with that, what are maybe some basic practical principles that, that you kind of employ when you're reading the Old Testament that we might benefit from, uh, some resources, things like that, that, that would help us when we are reading the Old Testament to be able to see how it's not this detached, just kind of history of the people of God before Jesus, but actually how it, how it links and applies and points to Jesus. Sure, yeah, and this will be very quick because I think we're coming to the end of our time. Again, if you want a more in-depth discussion of this, email me and I'll send you my notes. But I read the Old Testament according to the Quadriga. Uh, the Quadriga is the way that the church read the Old Testament for over a thousand years uh, before the rise of historical critical uh, interpretation. I won't bore you with all the, the history there. But when you read the Old Testament, you first read it literally. 
don't worry about Jesus just yet. <laughs> you know, don't worry about the morality and all these things. Just read it and ponder it, you know, and, and take time to look at every word and don't rush through it. And um, to, to study the literal sense is really what, you know, what it's called. Um, and then begin to pray about the passage. Invite the Lord to give you interpretation. And what, what the early church did was, after you studied the literal sense, um, then you would move to um, its typological sense, which is, how does this point forward to Jesus? Does that make sense? And maybe the four tribes, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't start there. I would start with just the four tribes and try to figure out the beauty of God's wisdom in the original context of what was going on there. But, but you, could, you could begin to meditate on how do, how do these words point to Jesus? Now, I will tell you something. Not every verse in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Okay, you don't have to force it. Um, some allegorists did that and it was weird. No, there's just there's sections in the Old Testament, they're just what they are. You know, they're a part of God's salvation history and, and you read them and, and benefit from them, but they don't have to, not every word has to point to Jesus, okay? Um, and then there was called the tropological sense. Don't worry about writing that down, but there was the moral sense. Um, and the moral sense was, okay, these are words written to the people of God. I am a member of God's people because I'm a part of the body of Christ. What is the moral, right? How should this affect my character and my behavior? Now, this is where it gets difficult because people in the Old Testament do all kinds of bad things, right? Well, obviously you use discernment. A lot of what we learn about character is what we don't do, right? What we shouldn't do. And so you, 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 you wait on the Lord to give you a personal application of, of what you can, how you can change your life in light of that truth. And then the last sense is called the anagogical sense, and, and that's where you um, meditate on um, the eschatology of the passage, meaning you know, you're reading the creation story, and so you think about how is God gonna ultimately work out his plan, which he's given just a piece here, you know, Basically, you're putting it into the overall framework of your theology. Um, I'm going to stop there. It's a lot of detail. <laughs> yeah. But if you, again, if you want more, just email me and I'll send you, I'll send you my work. Awesome. You guys think, Dr. John? Um, I know some of you today, and you can tell by your questions, this is familiar stuff to you. And uh, at least to some extent, and you had questions based off that, um, and you just want to learn and, and grow more. There's a chance that some of you just sign up for everything that we do, and right about now you're thinking like, I didn't know <laughs> what this was. And really, it's it's okay if if you're either one of those people. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, I hope what today does for you is deepen your understanding, right? You learned a lot today, but it also helps you realize there's so much more to learn. I remember when I went to seminary, uh, a lot of people would ask me, like, you're, you're learning a lot. And I would say, yes, I'm learning how much there is to learn. 
And that's a lifelong journey. And so, you know, we kind of are flippant with the Bible. You know, we have one on our phone. Uh, we were talking, I was talking with Adam back there this morning about just, he was checking out this Bible and the, you know, what it's made out of. And I was like, well, I got a few others. <laughs> and a couple of them have different cool things about them. And so we have a lot of Bibles, I imagine you do. You have one on your phone. And we can, we can be flippant with Scripture, right? Uh, I think we just, we know what it says. Um, our hope today encourages you and challenges you to, to say, we have our whole lives to dig into this book. That there's a wealth of knowledge about who God is, about what he has accomplished on our behalf, and we're never going to get to a point, and we would say this in seminary, and it was just false, where we palm the Bible like a basketball. I mean, that's probably not going to happen. Like, it's so, there's so much in here. You want the Bible to palm you, and you want to keep learning and keep growing and do that for the rest of your life. So I hope, if nothing else today, that you go home, you find your Bible, and you read it, and you bring it tomorrow, and we keep reading, keep studying, keep asking these questions. Dr. John was gracious enough to give us his email address and say you could email him like 10 times. And so uh, that's really gracious of you to do that. And so do that. Ask those questions. Ask me questions. Let's keep this going as a conversation as we continue to learn together.